You don't even laugh at that anymore. I'm really not going to preach an hour and a half, I promise. We began a series of lessons last week on parables of judgment for a couple of reasons. One, the Lord spoke a lot about the end of time and about where we would stand before him and when we would give an account and the things for which we would answer and the fact that every man receives the rewards of his own choices in this life. But also so that we might address and deal with some things that are more personal, more real to us. We, we get into a habit as preachers of preaching in generalities. And it's easy to do. There's so many things that apply to so many people but really hit no one in the heart at all. We've preached truth, we've, we've dealt with text, we've addressed sermons, we've even, we've even touched on things that might affect one or two people, and then we're done, we're through, and it's over, and everyone feels a little bit better, maybe a little bit worse, but, but no one's angry, no one's upset, but no one's genuinely challenged to change at the end of those sermons. However, you cannot study the judgment parables of Jesus not the way they were intended to be studied, not the way he preached them, and go away unaffected. Either one of two things will happen. You, you will get to the end of that discussion, and you will think, I'm thankful for what I have in Christ and who I am and who he's made me, and I'm ready to stand before him. Or you'll leave saying, there's something in my life that drastically needs to change because I'm not ready I'm not prepared right now to meet him in judgment. This morning, our attention turns to Matthew chapter 25. In the first 13 verses, a, a, a parable amongst a series of parables. Some believe you could go all the way back to the end of chapter 24 and find a parable or a combination of two parables. You find at least two parables that open Matthew 25 and then the judgment scene at the end of that chapter. I think all of them are parabolic teachings. They are illustrative thoughts about a general biblical eternal truth, and that is that no man knows the day or the hour when the Lord shall return, so be prepared that he might come at any moment. If you want to sum up the last half of, of Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25, that's exactly what it is. You see, for Jesus will come suddenly, whether it is before I believe he will come or whether I feel like he's delayed in his return, he will come suddenly and I will still be held into account for the life that I've lived, the choices that I've made. I want to do a, a few things this morning before we get to that question again that we asked a moment ago. First of all, let's look together at the details of this particular parable. Let's look at what it has to say about, about what it is. We're going to read through it and break it down that we might appreciate just the text itself and what it's telling us. First of all, there was a wedding. There was a wedding. The Bible says in Matthew 25, beginning in verse number 1, that the kingdom of heaven is, like, or is comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent or wise. For the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. All right, so we have a, a wedding pictured, a scenario here that helps us appreciate the, the culture of that time, or maybe it doesn't help us appreciate, but to understand it, we should appreciate it. And no doubt when you've studied Matthew 25 before, you've had preachers or teachers tell you that the customs of their day about weddings are different than the customs of our days. There's, there's a chance that the, the first century marriage had 
had three stages to it. There was the engagement, there was the betrothal, and there was the wedding itself. Now, the engagement would take place anytime before or after the birth of those children, arranged or fixed marriages. They, they would be promised to one another. But when they became of age, when things became closer to being ready for that particular marriage um, event, they would be betrothed to one another. That's where we find Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1. It is as binding legally as a marriage itself, although the marriage has not been consummated. They don't live together. The final steps have not been taken in the wedding feast, but the betrothal is there. And then there is ultimately and finally the wedding itself. Now, where we find ourselves in Matthew 25 in these opening verses is it's setting the stage for the time that they have moved from betrothal to ceremony. Again, depending on the, the, the writer that you read or the culture that's there, there, there's a little bit of difference as to what might have actually played out and how it actually happened. The general belief is this, is that the, 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 the groom is at his home where they're going to live, whether on family property or in, in the family house, preparing his, his residence for his bride. And when he gets everything ready, he then he makes his way to her house, however far that is, however long that takes, and he goes and he gets her, and with him are a procession of friends. They go and they, they find the bride, and then they begin a procession back from her house all the way back to his. And in that second procession, as they're traveling through the streets, as they're moving through the land, they begin to gather a following. And people begin to, 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 to fall in line. They're, they're wanting to go into and be a, participate in the wedding feast, which might have lasted as much as a week in ancient times feasting and enjoying. And along the way, there are those who've been waiting for this time since the time of the betrothal. Now, since weddings generally happened at night and no one knew exactly when things would finally be prepared, how long it would take him to go get her, how long it would take them to come back, you just had to be ready at a moment's notice when the procession came through with a man heralding out in front, behold, the bridegroom is coming, behold, the bridegroom is coming, and they found themselves. That, that's the situation that we find ourselves here in the wedding. In the process of time, there was waiting. Picking up there in verse number 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom came out to meet him. When all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But the prudent answered, No, that will not be enough for us. So go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. It was waiting. I don't know if you've ever been on the outside looking in. It's something that you desperately wanted to be on the inside of looking out at. But if you've ever been there, you can understand the dilemma and the struggle. They had waited for so long. They apparently had some type of family or friendship connection to this couple. Maybe they had been planning for this moment and for this time since the time they had heard of the engagement. And certainly since the time that, that they had been betrothed to one another, just waiting for the right moment for the right time. But the bridegroom delayed and they got sleepy. And so there was a wedding. It was a waiting. And then there was a wailing. 
Now, it's not described in English terms this way to us, and it's not even described in this parable the way it is more vividly in some others, but don't miss the emphasis and the intense moment that takes place immediately after the door is shut. The Bible says in verse 11 that later other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. You know, the, the, the closest language in Scripture that I can find that matches the shutting of the door and the picture of those beating to get in, it's all the way back in Genesis when the ark door was shut and people wanted on. And I believe we're supposed to see it with that type of intensity, with that type of, 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 of fear and fervor and disappointment They were shut out. The door would never be opened again. They would never enjoy that for which they had longed and waited and prepared and wanted. And they cried. They wailed outside the door. Lord, Lord. Now, those are the details. Consider with me now for a moment the connections. The connections. This this parable is told only in Matthew's gospel account. It's not told anywhere else in Scripture. Now, the the premise of it, the concept of it, can be found throughout the Gospels, and most certainly, as we've been studying through on Sunday nights in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, throughout the letters of the New Testament. Be alert, be ready, for we don't know the hour, but he will come and he will judge the world, and we will give an account for the things that we've done. But Matthew has this parable in a particular place, I believe, for a particular reason. First of all, the, the first connection that I think that we can see is this idea of being alert. See, the, the, the previous chapter ends with a section beginning back in chapter 40, verse 42 that says, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now that opens a section of Scripture in 42 that I mentioned a moment ago that really runs all the way through the end of chapter 25. And so while we have a new chapter, we have a new story, and we have a new maybe event here in 25, it's not disconnected. In fact, it's interconnected to the events of 24. Now, we don't have time this morning, nor is our desire to go and dissect and understand everything in Matthew 24. If you've ever studied Matthew 24, you know, that takes a full quarter probably or more to do that. You have the destruction of Jerusalem being prophesied at the beginning of that chapter. At the end of the chapter, you have the promise of the Lord's return at the end of time when all things will be destroyed. It's when he makes the transition from the destruction of Jerusalem to the destruction of the world that he says, now be alert because you don't know when. You see, if you read Matthew 24, you're going to find out that they did know something about when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. There were going to be signs. They were going to be able to discern the times and to be able to see what was happening in the world and what was happening in Rome and what was happening in Jerusalem and know and get out and flee and avoid that destruction. But there was a destruction coming, he says, you can't avoid. There was a destruction on the horizon that you would not be able to miss. But you don't know when and you don't know where and you don't know at what time. And so be ready and be alert doesn't start in Matthew 24 or 25, rather it starts in Matthew 24. But I don't, I don't think that to me in my terms is the neatest connection in this parable in the book of Matthew. You see, Matthew is written in a series of five teaching sections. Unique, unlike any other gospel, I know that the other gospels have their unique qualities and characteristics. But Matthew has five major teaching sections in it. And you know it because the Bible will say, 
five different times. And when Jesus had ended these sayings, it ends those sections. The first of those sections is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You'll remember that statement, right? And when Jesus had finished these statements, they were astonished at his doctrine and teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as one of the scribes. He's going to say the same thing about chapter 10. He's going to finish those sayings. He's going to finish the sayings of, of chapter 18. He's going to finish the sayings now of chapters 23, 24, and 25. In fact, go over to chapter 26. Chapter 26 of Matthew says, when Jesus had finished all of these words, so you move from narrative to teaching, from narrative to teaching, from narrative to teaching. Now, that's important, but not the most important thing. What's interesting is the connection between the first teaching section of 5, 6, and 7 and the last teaching section of 23, 24, and 25. Look again at our text and notice with me some phrases. How it reveals in Matthew chapter 25 that there are two groups of people presented here in this, in this parable. The wise and the prudent, or the, the, the foolish and the prudent, or the wise and the fool. Do you know when the first time Jesus made mention of those two categories of people? It was at the conclusion of his first teaching section. When he preached through the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Now those who hear this saying, hear these sayings of mine, and do them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But those who hear these things of mine and, and don't do them, they'll be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Some believe that's the first parable of the Gospel of Matthew. And it ends the first teaching section. And now as began to draw a close to this last teaching section, notice what he does with all humanity again. He doesn't divide them into male and female, Jew and Gentile, adult and children. He divides them into the wise and the foolish. And so we see that connection. We also see the cry outside the door. Did you notice that? And they stood outside the door and they cried, Lord, Lord. Where have we heard that cry before in the book of Matthew? But in the last chapter of the first teaching section in chapter 7, when people thought they were ready, when they thought they had done his will, when they thought they had done good, and, he, and they cried out to him, Lord, Lord. And what did he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Isn't that what the bridegroom says here at the end of this parable? Depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, we're not supposed to see this parable simply as a preparation parable that we would miss out on something that the rest of the world would enjoy if we're just not ready for the return of Jesus. See, how I respond in preparation for judgment determines whether or not he knows me. The Old Testament is full of references to the idea of God knowing his people and the people knowing God. And when you come to the New Testament, we have that in full revelation because Jesus came, the book of John says, to show us the Father, that we might know him. Now imagine giving your life, your energy, your talents, and your time to be dedicated to a local body of believers only to get to judgment day and for the door to be shut. And when you cried out to God, Lord, open to me, he says... Who are you? I don't know you. Now imagine, imagine if someone came beating on your door in the middle of the night. And they called you by name. They said, Cliff Caskey, which by the way, brother, it was great to hear you up here this morning leading us 
in communion thoughts. Just wanted to say that. Someone's knocked on your door in the middle of the night. If you can hear them, Cliff, and they say, Cliff Kasky, open the door to me. And you looked out and you had never seen these people before. You didn't know who they were. You know, the, the response might be, well, who are you? How do you know my name? Why are you invoking my grace? Why are, you, why are you coming to my door? What's this all about? Who are you? Friends, that's the picture here. These people had a connection with the bridegroom. They had waited for the bride to come. They believed they were part of the wedding party. Not only were they left out, they were forgotten. That is the intensity of the moment. That's the connection between Matthew 7 in Matthew 25. So what are, what are some things that we, we learn? What are some truths revealed in this text? Very, very quickly, because we do still have that question we want to come back to in a moment. Number one, we learn that preparation is necessary. Just plain and simple. You see, there are so many similarities between the, these, these bridesmaids on this night. They both had the same types of lamps, no doubt. I was going to mention that. The lamp that you see on the screen is, is one depiction of how those lamps might have looked, and they've actually unearthed some of those. They would have a, a small pocket of reserve in the back where you would pour the oil. There would be a wick that would come out the front, and you would burn that out, and you would have extra oil so you could pour into that, that, that bigger part in the back so they continue to burn. Some writers believe, however, that there was a, a, a lamp that they had that was wrapped in cloth, and they would dip it in their oil. They would light it, and as it burned off, they would continue to feed that so they could carry it almost like a torch. There's a possibility that both of those existed during that time. See, there were some similarities between these, these bridesmaids. They, they had lamps. They had oil, in the, at least initially. They were waiting in the same place. They were waiting for the same people. In fact, the only difference, the only difference between the two is that one made preparation for delay and the other didn't. One thought, hey, hey, what if it's not in the time frame that we thought it would be? What, what if he's a little bit later? What if we end up falling asleep? Will we still be ready? Maybe you can liken it to what type of person you are, and most homes have both of these. Do you leave 15 minutes early in case there's a train in San Marcos? Or do you leave right on time just praying that there won't be? Well, one makes preparation, the other doesn't. I don't have to know which one is in your family and which one isn't. I just know they all exist. And they usually all end up stuck in the train track most of the time. It's about preparation. See, what I have today might not be enough for what I am going to go through tomorrow. And so I pray and I study and I meditate and I fellowship and I blend together and I get support from my church family and I, I make right what's wrong because I know that while I may be today where I need to be, tomorrow I may not have enough faith. Tomorrow I may not have enough zeal. Tomorrow I may not have enough dedication. So I bring extra. Preparation is absolutely, absolutely necessary. Another lesson we learn from this text is the danger of a lost opportunity. The door's not opening back, not in the parable. The door was shut. The wedding feast proceeded, and they didn't get to go in. Now, again, that's not, in a, in a human sense, that's not the end of the world, right? You, there will be other weddings. There will be other opportunities, but that one won't be anymore. That one won't exist. You won't have that chance. You ever missed out on something like that? 
Knowing that while you may have other opportunities and other things may be given you and you may be blessed in other ways, you'll miss that one and you won't have that one back. Somewhat defeating, isn't it? Especially, especially if it comes to the end of time. Because while God may give us a thousand chances in this life, when they're done, friends, they're done. It's just over. There will be so many, no doubt, in eternity who will regret a lost opportunity to make better preparation. And then number three, we learn that some things cannot be borrowed. I don't make too much out of the parable itself because the general rule of thumb in parable studies is that you don't stretch the meaning beyond its intended purpose. You don't try to read into every nuance and, and, and every passage and every reference something grand and great and different. But friends, if I'm ready for judgment, it will be because I am ready for judgment. It won't be borrowed from anyone else. Now, we get our faith and our righteousness and our mercy and our grace and our example from Jesus, so we'll, we'll give that as a caveat. But I will not be able to turn to Shannon Cam on the Day of Judgment and say, I need just a little bit more good deeds over here. I need a little more sacrifice on, on my end of the ledger. I need a little more faith from my elders. I, I need a little more credibility from the congregation I was a part of. I want to tap into the, to the, to the, to the bulk of good works that we all did because I need to take some of them with me. They, they can't be borrowed. Because it's just as much God will bring down judgment on a congregation and a nation, the heart of judgment is individual. Probably we see that in this, this series of, of parables in Matthew chapter 25. And so... Finally, this morning, I want us to talk about a modern concern. A modern concern. So what's the, what's the thing that you miss most when the world shut down? Probably an unfair question, I know. There's so many things that we miss, right? Maybe it's Whataburger. And you just longed for the day when the cars were backed up in the drive-thru again, or Garcia's enchiladas. Maybe, maybe it was a, a crowded stadium at a sporting event or a concert. Maybe it was sitting behind or in front of someone in a row in the church building. Maybe giving someone a hug shaking their hand. Maybe it was the collective worship of the saints. I'll tell you what, more than likely the thing that we miss the most, we did it as often as we could and as quickly as we could when it was made available to us again. Is that a fair statement? The things we miss the most when they were brought back, I remember our, our first meal out. It was in Mamacitas, and I don't even think the air conditioning was working. By the way, it's the last meal I ate at Mamacitas because they ended up closing back down. But we, we missed dining out. So we did that as, as quickly as possible. Here's the reason for the question. There, there's a, a, a point of this parable that goes all the way to the end of time all the way to judgment, 
It bypasses everyone's life and everyone's agendas and everyone's hopes and, and everyone's shortcomings, and it takes us all to one place. But I believe that it's there for more than just that. Because I think there are, there are moments of, of our lives, and maybe we're in one now, and really I'm, I'm searching for the exact right words, okay? Where we have to wake up and ask, was I prepared for what just happened? Because you see, it's, it's about being prepared in those moments that make us prepared for the final moment, right? If I'm not prepared today for what lies tomorrow, then I won't be prepared tomorrow for what lies the next day. And eventually I'll become derailed, I'll get off track, and I won't be ready for that great day. See, the idea of sleeping in the parable was not that they were neglecting or, 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 neglecting or, or lethargic. They all slept, the wise and the foolish. So, so it isn't to say, if you're asleep today, wake up, because the Lord's going to come back one day. Maybe if you were asleep, you woke up and didn't even know what I was talking about. But <laughs> if, if that's the point of the parable, then, then we've missed something. The point of it is this. There are seasons in all of our lives where the commonplace of life becomes so routine that our lamps go out. They just do. Peter had to address a group of people who actually thought because the Lord had delayed about 30 years, he was never coming back. And their, and their statement was, listen, things have been this way as long as we can remember. He's never coming back. We've been in a difficult, difficult place for the better part of a year. And we had some things taken away from us. We gave some things up. And I don't know how you want to see that. I won't come down on either side. I think it was a combination of the two. And what I'm afraid of is, is that some of us did not have enough oil to wake up from that and move forward. Did you miss worshiping? And do you remember the first Sunday back? Did you miss youth activities and made sure that after the seemingly endless Zoom calls that we had to play virtual games with one another, that we finally got to meet again and sing together again? Did you miss Bible class? Was it important to study around a table with people of the same age and, and share struggles and study text? See, the reason I ask that question, because it's a concern of mine, is if I were to share a picture online of what this building looks like on Sunday night and Wednesday night, I think the Lord would be ashamed. Did we miss it? Or do we feel like I've got enough lamp, I've got enough oil in my lamp, I don't need that. I'll just keep sleeping. I'll just keep relaxing. I'll continue as things have been. Friends, I'm not the judge of the earth. But what I fear 
is that we're going to wake up one day and the Lord's going to come back and some of us might be standing on the other side of the door pleading for him to open. He stands today knocking only on the door of our heart, not a door that's been shut permanently. And so we offer the invitation to ask, do you stand justified in this sight? If you're not a Christian, we would love nothing more than to study with you about becoming a Christian this morning. To tell you about his grace and mercy and what he did at Calvary, that your sins might be gone and washed away, covered in his blood. If you've done that, a life of responsibility has been handed to you of trimming your lamp and refilling your oil. Even though he has delayed so that we can be ready when the bridegroom comes, we can enter in into that wedding feast. Are your lamps full of oil? Are they trimmed and ready? If he came back today, where would you stand? We can help you address that question. We invite you to come while we stand and sing.